Welcome back to another Ag Watchers. We have got Mark Allison on here. Uh, I'm not sure which hat we will start off with, but Matt, uh, Mark is the uh, CEO of Elders, the chair of Agribusiness Australia, the chair of Grain Growers. He is a Strata president as well. Is that right? <laughs> One or two other things. Yeah. <laughs> One or two other things. Yeah, yeah. And and so we, we got Mark on today a, a bit of a a bit of a continuation from last week's discussion with Fiona Simpson. So last week we were talking to Fiona about really the state of the industry uh, with a focus on what is happening at a farm gate level, mm. and we really got Mark on today uh, to talk about his his role with Agribusiness Australia and really about what is the state of the industry when it comes to agribusiness. Mark, how's it going? Uh, very well, very well in lockdown. You're, you're in, in Sydney just now. Yeah. Um, so, so Mark, t- first of all, what, what is Agribusiness Australia? Because it's, it's probably, it's, it's a lobby group in essence, but it's probably one of the uh, less known ones compared to the NFF and, and whatnot. Tell, oh. tell us a bit about Agribusiness Australia. Yeah, but yeah, well, it, it, we really don't see ourselves as a lobby group. And, and just on the grain growers, it's, I'm a, uh, a director of grain growers. So, uh, Brett, if you're listening, uh, uh, Brett's the chairman, Brett Hoskins. So, uh, uh, I, uh, uh, the grain growers' journey has been a, a great, grain, uh, great journey uh, for the industry, as you know. But, but with Agribusiness Australia, uh, it's, uh, it's a total supply chain. Um, organisation. Uh, there's some advocacy, but it's around um, thought leadership and uh, and uh, events, networking, and, and actually bringing uh, on the thought leadership front, bringing issues to the table uh, with a quite an objective point of view, uh, so that we can have a, a balanced uh, debate. A couple of those examples was uh, you know the implications of uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative uh, for Australian uh, agribus- agribusiness, and uh, that uh, that uh, report didn't have a specific uh, point of view, but it did highlight some of the uh, the threats and opportunities of uh, of that uh, on Australian uh, ag- agribusiness. Uh, we uh, when we we've got an MOU with NFF and uh, we work with NFF uh, and NFF, as you know, is largely pre-farm gate, uh, whereas uh, whereas agribusiness Australia is total supply chain. So when we talk about Australian agribusiness, uh, the pre-farm gate uh, target of um, of 100 billion by 2030 and post-farm gate target of uh, of uh, 200 million by 2030. So combined around 300 billion of production through the agribusiness supply chain. What's the, what's the- Mark, Mark, I see that um, just today that was announced by ABARES uh, that they're expecting now for this financial year, Australian agriculture is going to produce 73 billion in, uh, mm. in product, which was up from the previous estimate. Um, yeah. what, from your perspective, in, in terms of all the, the different hats you wear, have you ever seen, and, and, the, and the time I guess you've spent in agriculture, you've been around for a while, Mark, have you ever seen a better season than this? Yeah, it's, um, I, I think across the board, uh, it's way up there, if I think over the last 40 years. Uh, across the board, uh, uh, through multiple commodities, multiple geographies, multiple aspects, uh, yeah, we've only got one or two clouds. That there's a bit of market access cloud with geopolitical issues uh, on the China front. But, but really, given that uh, we're, we're dealing in commodities, uh, in terms of wine and uh, wine and uh, the barley, which is more high-profile initiatives with China, 
chickpeas with uh, with uh, India. I mean, th there are other markets. So uh, you know, crayfish uh, through the agribusiness supply chain, uh, very very difficult because China actually made that market. So it's very difficult to find uh, a create another high value market when China made the market. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's quite fascinating because when the uh, pre farm gate target of six of a uh, hundred billion was set, we were sitting a few years ago. We were sitting at about sixty billion, and we dropped down to it uh, might have been forty eight at the lowest end. Yeah, exactly. So so the bounce back's quite uh, quite. Uh, quite significant as you say and I think your uh, your recent report on uh, the state of the industry with winners and losers it's uh, it, it highlights yeah the, the growth it's agriculture so there'll be super seasons and there'll be average seasons and there'll be poor seasons and there won't just be one consistent season you know running a public listed company like elders I always uh, try to take away all the variability so the shareholders get their dividends and their capital growth uh, and we do that by business model and portfolio management but in agriculture as a country it is what it is I think and I think that's that's the thing. The good thing is this year it's it's not just this year; it's also last year as well, which is yeah. you know another good year last year. Set two years in a row. We don't we don't often get two years in a row, so yeah, we, we I think that's right. And I think Andrew, I think it's fair to say that given uh, um, soil moisture profiles. Uh, given cash availability, uh, just with average seasons for the next couple of years, uh, it'll be still very strong. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what is the definition of agribusiness then? I've had this discussion with with university lecturers and and, and various people about what 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 is the definition of an agribusiness. What's what's your view of it? Yeah, well, I, I think it's the total supply chain, uh, and so that picks up food, fibre, agri, all the way through from production to processing, all the way through. And, and I think that's uh, why uh, Agribusiness Australia thinks it's uh, why we think it's very, very important to be talking total supply chain. So having a hundred billion target for pre-farm gate uh, kind of uh, uh, takes away from the significant value add uh, that occurs in the uh, the rest of the the post-farm gate supply chain and uh, the ability to differentiate at that level, uh, in my mind, is much greater than trying to differentiate a commodity because commodities are commodities by definition. And I think, and I think that's, that's, that's a good point as well because Pat Hutchison, we spoke to him uh, from uh, Australian meat industry uh, mm. probably two or three weeks ago. <clears throat> and that was a point that he made as well is that sometimes the supply chain is, is forgotten about. But, but in, in reality, you know, you have this value adding, even just even just the transport industry and, and whatnot, that all adds yeah. on to that ability for money to go back down the supply chain to yeah, the farm exactly. to that hundred billion. And, yeah, and I yeah, think, yeah. sorry, go. On. I think that's an interesting point because the reality is that you know the industry is is you know is, there is a symbiosis between the farm gate and the end gate. And it's not a it's not a win lose lose win. It's a it's a sort of a win win. If if the supply chain's doing well, farms do well, and if farms do well, you know, supply chain does well in general terms. You know. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, I, I think when we kind of benchmark globally on our cost of goods for our ag commodities, our uh, physical infrastructure in Australia and with ports, etc., and internal internal transport actually puts us behind the eight ball and so to ignore something that has a fundamental uh, impact on on your global competitiveness is a problem in my mind and what was the the in in the last year or so we've, we've you've got a membership that covers almost everything like you say from from crayfish to 
to horticulture to mm. to 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 water traders to to everyone mm. really yeah what at the moment we, we we talk a lot at the moment about how good it is yeah and i don't want to be that negative scotsman again uh, what is what is what what is the biggest shadow at the moment? What is the biggest risk that we face as as an industry, as as an as an overall industry, not maybe not specific? Yeah, yeah. I um, I, I think that sometimes we chase shadows, and you know, being uh, focusing on uh, uh, geopolitical stuff and market access, I think is the wrong thing for us to focus on in a time when it's been uh, when there's a lot of capital and. Uh, and success and profit in the industry. I think uh, one. I think the thing we've got to uh, watch out for is not investing that capital to make us far more efficient uh, in, in terms of, uh, as I said, the digital infrastructure, physical infrastructure, uh, a lot of the uh, supply chain stuff that we've spoken about. But but also to really hone in on uh, the potential to um, to to drive to prioritise our R and D much much better. So we do actually get points of difference out of it, out of it, and not just a local need in aspirants for frost resistance or something for grain, whereas there's a, there's a national need to be competitive against, uh, you know, particularly the emerging markets in the world, whether it's South American beef or the you know, Central Asia, uh, Eastern European grain. But I think, like, on, on the R&D, like, Matt and I aren't scientists. You, you've got a background mm. in science, so you know more, more about it than us. But, mm. but there is this sort of, you, you do see, and this is me talking from an outside point of view, you do see that there's a lot of research done for research sake and 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 it would be good to see well what are you know the drivers of for argument's sake what are the drivers of profitability because that's really what when we're doing research we're not doing research to to solve frost we're doing research yeah. to increase profitability by not having frost it's, it's all about the profit driver so so that's i nice. guess and this is where the industry probably needs to be better at is, is looking at well if you're a sheep farmer, what are the influences of profitability on that farm? You know, and it, and it comes back to that sort of that really basic sort of you've got your inputs, you've got your yield, and then you've got what you sell it for, you know, and take that off and it's a profit. And so we've got a couple of different sections in there. And then we can mm. sort of see, well, that is where we should be spending the money on because that is going to give us a better quantum of, you know, potential profitability. Mm. Um, but you know i guess it's it's an interesting one to see well there's a lot of obviously scientists there have got their their piece of interest and yeah and, and it might not marry up always with with what is what is happening across the national yeah. uh, and I, I think the structure of the rdc's had that in mind by having a strong uh, producer representation whichever rdc it happens to be uh, across kind of uh, wool grain uh, red meat uh, et cetera et cetera horticulture um, but, but but I think what we've uh, the, I, I think the as you say the, the end user need needs to be defined far more I mean to give you an example I mean I I chair the end user group for the smart set uh, for agriculture and environment and we had a presentation uh, Last week, uh, talking about um, this, this satellite use for um, uh, what was it for identifying smoke, uh, like for pre uh, for, for uh, fuel load and uh, oh, yeah. identification for bushfire, like uh, for proactive bushfire. And, and as as a chair of that end user group, I'm thinking, so can this technology, if it can do that, surely it can predict locust plagues uh, coming across uh, from the west. Surely you can do uh, predictive stuff on uh, fungal activity. 
for broadleaf winter crops. Surely it can pick up mice, uh, mice uh, population buildup. Uh, and and that, I think you're dead right. Converting it into real money and using the technology to make real money <coughs> into activity is, is the challenge. And I, I was talking about Mark, Mark, I'm just going to say on that on that um, uh, point you made regards the this drive towards or what you see is is the biggest hurdle being this you know we've got to focus on efficiency and productivity and, and profitability. Um, one in as part of this series, I've spoken to a few kind of industry leaders and something that pops up that I guess is a bit of a, a barrier to a degree in the bush um, to, to getting that efficiency is connectivity. Um, I know um, Fiona Simpson mentioned it, and we've had the likes of Angus Street Auctions Plus also said that that's the, the, one yeah. of the big barriers for them or the big hurdles. You, you get around quite a bit um, in all the roles you do you know, across the country. Do you, do you perceive that as being a bit of a hurdle to that, achi- achieving the, you know, the best we can in terms of efficiency? Is, is, is connectivity a problem as far as you see it? Before you, answer, before you answer, Mark, I'll just highlight to everyone who's listening that we have a connectivity issue here and that Matt's internet's <laughs> poor and he's having to dial in on Zoom on his phone, hence why yeah. the, the sound quality is not the greatest. And the pigeon that just delivered the message to me made a mess on my desk here. Well, when you were talking about smoke signals, that was the message from the satellite. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, I, I, I think you get right. And, you know, when we look at the uh, the uh, big uh, hurdles to, in our pathway to 300 billion total um, uh, uh, agribusiness uh, production by 2030, so that includes the 100 billion pre-farm gate. You know, we've we've talked about market access as one of the one of the big issues. Uh, we talk about community acceptance. So a lot of the ESG uh, and it's it's both communication and sustainability work. Uh, clearly, uh, the R and D prioritisation, which we've always also touched on. Now, the and the final item is a biggie. And I talked about the physical infrastructure. But a massive part then is the digital infrastructure, as you've as you've highlighted, and, and you know I'm sure you've heard all the stories. I mean, I've yeah, the, the guy uh, up in the past the pastoral um, area up in North uh, Northern Territory, getting up in his light aircraft to send emails, um, <laughs> you know, just a whole heap of really crazy stuff. And, and you know, how can we possibly harvest the potential benefits of uh, really innovative ag tech if you can't give, even get online? Um, so it's a major issue, and, and it worries me. We seem to be going round and round in circles on a lot of these aspects, but it is a major limitation. And a lot of these countries we're competing with, you know, th- that was uh, one of the highlights of the, uh, or one of the threats in the Belt Road implications for Australian agriculture, is that uh, many of these Central uh, uh, Central Asia, Eastern European countries will be linked directly with highly efficient supply chain, fast trains, transport, et cetera, et cetera, and digital infrastructure through to the biggest uh, um, Asian markets. And we're still here kind of going up in our light aircraft to send a few emails. Well, Matt, Matt you've, you've spoken about it, or you, I think you've spoken about it in every single podcast about Starlink and, and how yep. you're trying to try put your name down for it. And, and, that, and I think that's probably the, the answer in the longer term is potentially, you know, the private industry tends to almost do better than governments in this type of thing. Mm. And so, so Elon Musk has introduced that Starlink program, which is low, mm. low altitude satellites, so a lot cheaper than the ones that the NBN is using. Mm. And, and I think over time that will be, we'll just find that the private sector will, will take over, which is probably the right thing anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a strong national good argument, but you're, you're right. I, I think ultimately 
Uh, I think it would make good sense. You know, if you think pre-COVID, the money we've spent on uh, where we've spent on um, assistance programs and shutdowns, if we put that into a digital physical infrastructure in Australia uh, and go to have the same deficit, we, we'd be streets ahead of where we are. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in terms of at the moment, yeah. So I'll, I'll ask you a question from from an elder's point of view, I guess this time. Mm. We we we're coming up to you know another harvest. We've we've got through we've got through this two COVID let's call it two COVID supply seasons of of mm. fertilizer and and chemicals and and all sorts of different parts. And logistically, we, we're talking about the supply chain, but logistically there has been a lot of challenges in the last two years really more so almost the worst supply chain really that we've experienced since the the second world war potentially in mm. terms of getting stuff moving around the world is that something that's on the radar of of, of issues going forward uh, what, what's the what's this what's the sort of the viewpoint for the coming the coming supply season yeah i think in terms of uh, farm inputs it's top of mind and uh, as you know, a lot of fully formulated, uh, if we're talking uh, chem uh, product, uh, comes directly in from uh, from China. So we were, we were looking at uh, uh, expanding formulation capacity as an industry uh, in Australia, so that uh, so that you have much greater flexibility with the use of the active ingredients uh, at that time. Uh, but but I, I think if we cut, if we if we go very simplistic on it, um, our thinking and certainly my thinking is that you just add eight weeks. Uh, which means uh, from a company's viewpoint like ours, you carry the capital for an extra eight weeks in order to ensure uh, uh, that there's uh, market supply. In terms of, uh, you know, some of the big commodities, if we're going to fertilise, we, we know what's happening with the fertiliser prices, nitrogen markets, high analysis product, glyphosate, we, we see what's happening there. And we've also had other plants uh, in the US taken out with this recent high... Um, uh, Hurricane Ida. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I, I think uh, it's a bit of a blunt instrument. It's just extending your time in the planning seems to be the most appropriate uh, approach. And and then um, the, you know, if it's an average season, you'll get people like us and other suppliers caught with a product for twelve months. And if it's a record season, you know, it'll be hand to mouth and we'll deliver. Uh, but uh, but I, I think the responsibility is actually with people like us, not with the farmer, uh, because you know, if, if the season's exceptional then, um, you know, it's our role to support our customers around Australia and being able to put the crops in. Well, there would have been a few sleepless nights the last 18 months. As a... uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, we're all pretty low pulse rate. I mean, it's uh, in my mind, it is what it is. You control what you can control. So so we knew what was happening. You know, a few a few competitors ran out of product and, and, you know, everyone has their own planning systems, et cetera, et cetera. But, but from our viewpoint, but what we control, we, we, we knew the shortage. We know the sea freight issues. We know the container availability issues. It's affecting all industries. Uh, the uh, we, we had a concern on some of the geopolitical impacts, but as you know, most uh, multinational uh, um, input suppliers have major supply bases out of China, uh, so it was unlikely that there would be issues. Uh, we, we knew that there may be some limitations uh, in supply, so uh, so our approach to that was uh, to hone in our forecasting, carry extra buffer stocks, and um, and that's the approach we took. As, as analysts, I still think that Matt, you probably agree with me. COVID has been pretty good for us as analysts because yeah, it almost sure, sure. almost almost gives you something to talk about every single day. <laughs> whereas, whereas, whereas I, rem- I remember talking to 
a might have been Colin Bettles actually when he was still mm. a journalist. Mm. And I remember saying him to him in 2019, oh, God, it's, it's going to be really boring if Trump if Trump uh, leaves Parliament because uh, he's mm. always given us something to talk about as an analyst. And, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then COVID came along, so it's uh, mm. it's kept things exciting because what as an analyst that's what we need is we need geopolitics is probably the most interesting one to talk about because it yeah. it gives you it's an interest piece. Yeah, yeah. And, and market, and volat- market, market volatility is what you know one of those things that like you said Andrew there's always something to look at and something to talk about and I guess from our perspective too being a lot of the stuff we do as desktop database research and we don't we don't necessarily need to be on farm at all or, or traveling the country unless we're presenting or seeing clients and to a degree that's one of our bigger costs andrew isn't it to to get out and travel um so you had a good excuse to be stuck in the computer screen having more time to look at data and graphs which is exciting for the likes of us mark yeah yeah that's right well i think it's really interesting you know because early on last year i was on a, a few panels on how to cope with COVID uh, for publicly listed etc and and I, I was actually quite surprised because, uh, you know, there are people, you know, doing their, uh, their fancy pivot here and pivot there and pivot up and pivot down and all this sort of nonsense. <laughs> and and when each time they come to me, I'd say, well, no, we've got a core strategy is to serve our growers and our producers in regional rural Australia 182 years later. And uh, so, so we'll, we'll do our best to do that. And uh, what that means is changed approaches, like I said, to supply chain and to access and to to uh, how you deal and more online and all this, you know, uh, agronomic stuff uh, through Zoom in, in paddocks, et cetera, et cetera. But your strategy is your strategy. <laughs> so I, uh, I I do find it quite uh, quite interesting that and so, same with you. I mean, your core your your core value proposition is around the the analytics, the data, the insights. And so does COVID change that? No, it, no. it, it may broaden well, exactly. I, I would disagree with some of what Matt says. I do mm. miss some of some of the lunches, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so so that is that is one of the things that we've missed out on. It's it's ah, always it's, so it's, it's, it's always good to get invited to talk about markets over, over lunch with, with with various various companies, which we used to do regularly, which is probably good for us, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so so the wine drop. In Australia, that wasn't the tariff increase in China. It was about four percent, Matt and I. Um, <laughs> um, although, although we did we did get away once, Matt, didn't we? This year, we got to uh, we got to Coffin Bay to uh, to to experience. Oh, sorry, sorry, Matt, that was actually just when me. you say <laughs> we. When you say we, you mean you? Yeah, you, no, but, you no, went to Coffin Bay, and I went to I went to Longreach. Yeah, <laughs> But no, I think like I don't know the whole COVID thing. Like it's it's obviously, I still think it's like it's when when you think about the reaction to it, like the company reactions to it, you know, it have been generally quite good. You know, if you look at most companies, they've been able to adapt. I think it's it's difficult for some employees in companies compared to others. My uh, wait wait like from our point of view, Matt and I have been working from home for a long time. And, and we know how to work from, we know how to be flexible. Like I might do work at 11 o'clock at night and mm. and the next day I might sort of go and get my haircut or whatever mm. else. Whereas mm. it's very hard for people who have never done that before. And I think that's just part of what, what, a, what a lot of companies have had to get used to. Because I remember in, in previous companies, if you if you work from home, you're considered to be shirking. Mm. <laughs> you know? And nowadays that's, well, working from home is the is the norm. So, 
Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I think it's stating the obvious, but, uh, you know, and individuals respond in different ways. So but the, the person who uh, complains about, wow, I've got uh, the kids at home and uh, they're driving me crazy, then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got the person who's saying, hey, I've been here by myself for 12 weeks. If I just had some kids annoying me, I would be in heaven. So, you know... It's uh, it's it's a very very personal response, I think. And I think it depends on where you live. Like I, I've got friends who live in you know studio apartments in in Sydney and or Melbourne, stuck in those apartments for long periods of time with with mm. tiny little window looking outside. It was fine. It was fine when Melbourne was open. They're going out for dinner every night and and yeah. socialising and whatnot. Whereas if you live a bit further out and you've got a you know a bit of a garden, it, it sort of it does help. Mm. Yeah, that's so, right. In, in terms of, you, you mentioned the, the geopolitics and, and how it's probably a bit of a shadow over things. What's, what's the view of, of, of you at the moment with, with those geopolitical things? Do you think this will just at some point roll over and it will just get back to normal? Because we've gone through that sort of, you know, the, the US trade war with, with China, that's sort of simmering in the background. We've had a few little scuffles between Australia and and um, and China and India, and then we've also had obviously the Brexit sort of issues. Do you think we're sort of getting to a stage where things will start to go back to a form of previous normality and, and free trade, or or do you think we'll be in this for a bit um, longer? I, I don't think it's changed. I mean, our uh, our exports to China have increased through this period, and uh, and I I do think it's largely in Australia's uh, uh, control. <laughs> Because the, you know, I, I tell the story that, that an old guy told me uh, uh, in Hangzhou uh, about the uh, what's actually happening, and he an old uh, uh, mainland Chinese guy, and uh, he, he told uh, the story about oh this, this is clear what's happening here, uh, you know we're in in the village, uh, you know we had the story about the um, market gardeners in the village, and, and they've got forest all around, and every afternoon all the monkeys come down and steal all the all the uh, tomatoes and dig up the potatoes. And so, uh, you know, the head of the village says, okay, we're going to solve this problem. So in the afternoon, uh, all the monkeys are there in the trees waiting for it to go dark to steal everything. So the head of the village grabs a, a chook and takes it out in front of the monkeys, puts it on a block and chops its head off. And the monkeys don't touch anything. And so the, the moral of the story is you, you kill the chicken to scare the monkeys, right? And, and I very shyly asked the question, so does that make Australia the chicken and the US the monkeys? <laughs> and... <laughs> I think that's probably the best analogy I've heard of of trade, and I might steal that uh, for, for for a future presentation. But I think that's <laughs> you, can, you can do that because uh, I mean, if, if you look at, and through Lithuania, the same's happening there. Like small, a smaller economy that was quite uh, reliant on exports to China with timber, and uh, we're outspoken on a bunch of items that was basically none of their business, like like our situation, very similar to our situation. And uh, lo and behold, uh, there's tariffs put in place, and uh, there you go. Kill the chicken to scare the monkey. Same in Norway as well. Yeah, exactly what I was going to say. In Norway in 2010, I think the Chinese got annoyed, uh, not because of anything the Norwegian government did, but because the Nobel Peace Prize was was awarded to one of the dissident writers, I think, that China wasn't too favourable towards. And they Mm. requested the Norwegian government to do something about it and nothing happened. So they... um, they got stuck into their salmon sector. And I think that lasted five or six years, though. So from that 
from that yeah. perspective, the chicken might the chicken might be dead for a little bit longer to, to come yet, uh, Mark. Yeah, I think so, and I think we've also got to be objective. And, and you guys are the masters of objectivity. You know, I, I was uh, I saw in the weekend uh, in the Economist a, a story about how uh, you know can you believe that China is using uh, financial and economic uh, strength to get its own way? Uh, hold on a minute. Haven't have the West been putting tariffs on everyone for a hundred years? <laughs> is, is it, is, isn't that the, the, the most efficient form of warfare? Is... Well, that's it. I mean, well, you know, look at North Korea, look at Iran, look at Iraq, look at the North African countries, look what happened in South America. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So, so I, I think that, uh, so uh, from a geopolitical thing, I, I think what we're actually witnessing, if you look historically, you know, right from the, uh, right from, uh, the, the Spartans and the Greeks way back, and, uh, you know, this is a transition of number one economy to number two or, or power to num- number uh, uh, two to number one. Uh, and, uh, and it's been hastened by some decisions that uh, the US have made from a, from a global viewpoint, as we've just seen with Afghanistan. And, uh, mm. and that's what it is. So if you take a big enough picture and you lose uh, any uh, subconscious bias, uh, then, you know, our biggest, uh, biggest trading partner is China, our biggest local markets, closest proximity markets, China. But, but we've also got a world that we sell to. So we're not putting all our eggs in one basket anyway. And, and that's, that's, that's a good segue into what I was thinking as well, is there's a lot of talk about market diversification mm. and, and how we need to, you know, in, in, in five years' time, we won't be dealing as much with China. So when China does come back on, if the... WTO thing doesn't work, assuming it's another three years or four years left of this tariff. Uh, I've still got the opinion that we we still, with our barley trade, once we have access to China again, we'll go back to having 70% of our barley going to China overnight or, or, or in that year. Because the reality is it's the barley trade is not between Australia doesn't sell a single ton of barley to China or anyone else. It's individual trading companies sell barley to China or India. And it's not Australia who decides whether we have a diverse market or not. It is those trading companies and they will sell to whoever has a dollar more than the next com- country, you know, and, and they're not selling to China or they are really they're selling to Kofco probably. But, but the reality is that, that is what we see in, in at a farm level. You know, does a farmer sell to somebody who's ten dollars less to diversify the sales of their grains? It's not going to happen. It doesn't happen. I, 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 I completely agree with you. And, and you know, it's, it's a very very good point actually because what, what's lost, and particularly you know, with leaders like uh, I've I've stopped making public comments on the China issue uh, mid last year and, and, until this podcast. Until this podcast, <laughs> yeah, that's right. But uh, but uh, you know the. Uh, the, the, the relationships with the business partners are very, very strong as they always have been. And, uh, and, and, and the, the relationship is based on quality product at the right price at the right time and long-term partnerships. Uh, so, I mean, the, these business relationships, uh, and, and, you know, we all sit around and say, wow, how, how crazy, you know, to, to actually put your 14 grievances up front. And, uh, but, you know, like most of them are right. And then, uh, and then they say, "Wow, how crazy! Are you guys tone deaf? Don't they get that uh, China's been around for five thousand years? It's not a barbaric state, 
it's been a global economic driver for half that time. You, you know what I mean? It's so, yeah. so at that level, at the human level, at the government level, it is what it is, and uh, we know what drives it, and we know that politicians have fixed terms, and then we don't see them again until they uh, they get a bit de- bit of deprivation of uh, of um, of attention until the next election comes along. But but yeah. I just I just think that we're sort of I guess the same as what you said about jumping at shadows. I think you know diversifying markets is 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 good an idea in principle but actually requires at times the trading houses to 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 walk away from profit and hmm. i know if i was in that shoe i'd be i'd be selling to the, the highest price that's available so, hmm. so but, I, but, but as a strategy i mean like Really, truly, everyone knows that our whole uh, market access strategy for all our commodities is to have highly diversified markets. And we've been doing that for the last 100 years. So to come up with the idea that, uh, that i got a great idea, Let, let's have breakfast tomorrow morning. I mean, clearly we diversified markets. The, uh, the lobster case in WA was very different because it was driven by the customer. Driven by the demand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And look, I think... Look, I do think market access is important. You know, I think the more free trade agreements a country like Australia as an exporter has, the, the mm. better. Because, you know, I'm still, you know, I'm a big fan of, of Indonesia, big fan of yep. Southeast Asia, you know, Thailand, mm. uh, Myanmar, uh, mm. Vietnam, etc. are all going to be massive opportunities for us in, in the coming time. And we've got free trade agreements with most of them. That, 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 that's right. I mean, last year when the uh, the comprehensive, uh, uh, well, effectively ASEAN free trade agreement came in place, so there's 800 million people through through that area and then with uh, with North Asia, with uh, you know, South Korea and Japan and then with China. So, so the, the, we have got very, very strong um, close proximity markets. And, and, and what we can do is, is destroy the relationships like we did with the live export ban in Indonesia. And what we've done recently uh, with some of the uh, China stuff, um, obviously there's mutual stuff happening, so it's not one-sided. But um, I think that's the focus of it. The diversification is there on a plate for us. <laughs> How we keep it strong is, and is I, the question. And I think that that sort of reminds me of something that somebody said once, is that you build up your reputation in, in 10 cent pieces, but it gets withdrawn in $20 notes. So and that's mm, what we're doing with China. We've, we've built it up over time and then it's been sort of, very quickly sort of you know with the Chinese government is eradicated mm. one, one of the points you made Mark was uh, and, and it's a good point it's one we haven't really touched upon often is ESG and and mm. whatnot and, and we, we briefly touched upon it with with uh, Fiona the other day about carbon trading and biodiversity trading and you know what what's what's the agribusiness Australia sort of point of view on on these type of schemes you know carbon trading and, and what yeah yeah very uh, very supportive uh, we released a report uh, late last year I think it was on the, the change the implications of changing community expectations for agribusiness uh, again not taking a position but just highlighting some of the trends and changes and uh, what struck me or what came out of that was this this um, uh, understanding that both metropolitan and regional rural, um, people have a very very similar view on uh, on the environment on uh, on uh, on wanting to leave a better place than they they found when they came etc and and the big difference is timelines and the timeline difference is based on skin in the game and commercial uh, reality yeah. so people in the city can say yeah do it tomorrow because there's no impact for them 
uh, but uh, people in the country uh, say, well, hold on, this is our livelihood, it kills our communities if we just pull out. Uh, so I, I think the uh, our, our approach is very, very uh, supportive of being way ahead of the uh, uh, community expectations as agribusiness has been for many, many years, many, many years, uh, whether it be through animal welfare, whether it be through uh, reef, whether it be through uh, conservation tillage, um, you know, the genetically modified the, uh, uh, crops to re reduce OP, uh, organophosphorus use, et cetera, et cetera, organochlorine use, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I, I think the, the, the trick is to do it. The, the commitment and the belief is undoubted, undoubted. The, the 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 issue is being able to do it commercially in sustainable and uh, way and and that's that's what we're uh, very very supportive of I, I feel highly confident that we'll continue to make significant uh, uh, improvements and gains uh, both across all the areas of ESG and uh, we're, we're seeing it uh, seeing it in elders and we're seeing it across the industries do you find I guess going back to the carbon thing do you mm. think it is too complex at the moment? Do you think there's it's it's not being laid out about? I mean, more maybe more from a farmer's point of view. There seems to be is there is there enough simplicity there? No, so, I, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, you, you need to be able to explain this stuff in a kind of like five minute conversation. Uh, and in terms of the risks associated with being paid, the uh, the, the the lockdown risks, the the lockaway risks, I should say, the compromise on productivity, the gain in productivity, all this stuff's not clear. And uh, I think uh, I think that's that's the real challenge. Uh, the, the politics of it is it's like you know climate change. The politics of it is nonsense. Just forget about that. Let, let's yeah. talk about let, let's talk about how we make this working system uh, so that it uh, so that it's uh, not a major detriment to the, the key people making these decisions uh, to step ahead of the crowd. Look, I think I think if it's another market, if it's another market where a farmer can make a little bit more and a bit more cash. I, I don't see the time when it's ever going to be the biggest part of anyone's business, you know, mm. carbon trading or biodiversity mm. trading or whatnot, but it's an extra thing that they can, they can do. Exactly. And it's an extra, an extra thing that gets a little bit of extra revenue and, mm. and does some good as well. Yeah. And it's a, right it's, a way, it's, it's, it's a way, yeah, it's a way to economically reward the farmer for doing the right thing by the environment and by, you know, sustainability yeah. so it probably it, it probably is something that needs to be factored in if you're doing the right thing you should be getting some you know you're providing a benefit to the the broader community via the benefit you provide to the environment so um you know that should be acknowledged and it should be a financial reward attached to it i think yeah i, I think you're right matt and could, because when we actually look at it the, the debate is more around sticks than carrots right Yep. The, the debate is more around penalising and losing jobs and decimating communities rather than having another stream of income um, uh, for, for your uh, enterprise. What, what I'd like to see is I'd like to see some form of, I don't know, whether it's a scheme or whether it's a, an ability for people to understand the carbon market the same way they understand grains and livestock. Because hmm. I, I have my own concerns about the locking away of carbon for you know, in some cases, 60 years. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the reality is it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like any market. Why would you lock in your price now for 60 years time when all, all, all the sort of, all the research shows that the demand will be higher in 60 years time and the carbon price will be higher. Therefore, 
by Lockie. I, I think it's a good point. And, and that sort of clarity, I mean, there isn't the clarity for people to make informed decisions. And, that, and that's in, in, actually, there was a report that came out uh, late last week, actually, out of Scotland, which is from the Scottish, uh, oh, it might be the Scottish Crofters Association or something, and mm. basically saying that they're really concerned that there's not enough information for farmers to make that informed decision and actually understand what they're actually signing up for. Because mm. there's already been a number of cases where people haven't actually signed up for it and haven't mm. quite known what they were signing up for. And, and yeah. I think that's the big the big thing. Yeah. So so Mark, we've probably we've probably taken up enough of your time already. Uh, Matt, you haven't really said much because you've been <laughs> lurking in the background. <laughs> I've been I've been conscious that my connection's not good, so I've Given you two have got the better better connectivity at the moment, I was I was letting you take the lead there. But um, I agree. I've I've heard um, a few chimes of Mark's. Um, must be Mark's computer going off in the background. So he's probably got a heap of stuff he's got to chase up now. And we've kept him way too long. But we appreciate you coming on, Mark. It's a shame we didn't get to touch on your music side, Mark, because um, you know you are a bit of a polymath. I think that's the the right term of it. And we've seen from the discussion today, you're um, you're very knowledgeable in lots of different areas. But um, I would have liked to have asked you if you had a chance to listen to the lead-in music to the Ag Watchers podcast, what your thoughts were on that style of music, because Andrew hates it and I love it. And I know you're, uh, you're a musician in your own right, uh, you know, so I wonder if you've heard the, heard the uh, lead-in intro music, Mark. Um, no, but, but can you hum it for me, Matt? Uh, well Clint Jasper on the ABC journal he he described it as hokey hillbilly music uh, which is fairly apt Um, yeah well that's right well you know they say two two heads are better than one (laughs) (laughs) well you know it's it's always better to you're always a better swimmer when you've got web toes so (laughs) but uh, my, actually, I'm starting to grow to, towards the, the, the music. I think, I think the hillbilly music suits the two of us quite well. Mm. Uh, it's more so you. Um, so right, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. And uh, yep. so, Mark, thanks for coming along, taking the time out on a, on a Tuesday morning at, in, uh, in lockdown. Uh, at least you... You, you, you don't have anywhere else to go at the moment anyway. You don't have <laughs> anything other than your next Zoom meeting after the next Zoom meeting for the next yeah, exactly. rest of the day. Great, great, uh, great, great to talk to you guys and uh, look forward to catching up again shortly. No worries. Thanks, Mark. See you when you've got nothing. Thank on. you. Ciao for now. See ya.